interviews, news, and more that you hear daily on this radio station. Remember, just visit twitter.com forward slash KPFT or facebook.com forward slash KPFT Houston to promote and support KPFT online. This is Pacifica Radio, 90.1 KPFT Houston. It's a mighty long road that my poor hands have hold. My poor feet have traveled a long dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rode. Your deserts was hot and your mountains was cold. I worked on your orchards of peaches and prunes, slept on the ground by the light of your moon. At the edge of your cities, you will see us, and then we come with the dust, and we're gone with the wind. California, Arizona, I made all your crops, but it's no thought to organ to harvest your hops, dig the bees from the ground, pick the grapes from your vines to set on your table your light sparkling white. What is your creed? Who is the father and the son and the weed? Where is the spirit that saw liberty? When did you come to America? Long, long before when the buffalo won. When did your hands burn like gold? The thing that made this land your bride. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always más. Thank you for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is Tony Diaz. This is a one-hour special in honor of Chicana activist icon, Mira Jimenez. Please welcome back to our airwaves, one of the progenitors of our program, co-founder of Libro Traficantes, Liana Lopez. Thank you, Tony. I'm so honored to be here and grateful for you and the current NP crew for 
letting me, Brian Paras, and Ana Nunez take over the show tonight to honor Maria. It's a bit bittersweet to be back, but I'm so happy to be here to try to bring some cheer to those over this holiday season that are mourning Maria Jimenez, because I know there are so many, including myself. So I'm hoping tonight's show helps to lighten the load for some of those When I was putting this show together, hearing Maria's voice and her passion really helped. So I'm hoping it does the same for everyone else tonight. I'm also sending so much love and light to my sister, Stalina Villarreal, Maria's daughter. And also so much appreciation for her helping us choose tonight's tunes, starting with that first one from Leela Downs, Pastors of Plenty, This Land is Your Land. Libro Traficante High Tech Aztec, Brian Paras, is also here with us tonight. Between the two of us... We had a lot of audio of Maria um, along with Ana Nunez. Brian is here tonight as well to honor Maria. Hey, everyone. And uh, it's it's great to be back. Um, unfortunate that it has to happen like this. But uh, also, you know, just uh, an important reminder to love all of those special people around you. And, you know, we couldn't let this moment go by and not share with you some of those precious moments that we were fortunate to uh, have with Maria. Some of the audio includes, you know, moments from historic times that we have all lived through. I've been trying to think about a particular time that stands out for me with uh, Maria, and there's just so many. And, you know, what, what I can say is that Maria was one of the first icons, as Tony said, from the East End, you know, that really mattered to me, that I could respect um, and that I felt carried not just the the culture and the consciousness of the of the barrio, but also, you know, wasn't wasn't beholden to any particular politic or any politician. You know, she was uh, independent and fiercely, you know, a servant of of the people or el pueblo, as she would say. And I remember, you know, the humble space that she lived in, um, just a block, not even a block away from the railroad tracks. You know, everything about her was uh, just very special. She was the East Ends and Magnolia in particular, Dolores Huerta, MLK that folks could relate to. One thing that really impressed me was her ability to grow, you know, even much later in life as she began to help Tejas emerge um, and communicate uh, environmental justice issues to the immigrant population. So forever grateful um, for everything I learned from her and hope to carry her legacy on in, uh, in my work and you know, be be proud of everything that she stood for. You know, it's so funny that you mention that environmental justice and trains in the same story, because I just want to say, and you know, maybe it's not so appropriate to say this right now. It's a little funny, actually. But I think people, I think, I think people need to know that the time since I met Maria is all borrowed time that they've had with her. Uh, And I say that, of course, jokingly and lovingly, but I first met Maria when I was getting really involved with Nuestra Palabra right at the beginning. And I didn't have a whole lot of ties with immigration issues or environmental justice issues, although they were all around me. I just hadn't been put in that space where I could identify those issues. And so one evening after an event... I was super gung-ho on volunteering and meeting people, and Maria was so amazing. I wanted to talk to her more, so I volunteered to give her a ride home. Little did I know that not all railroad crossings have lights and arms that notify you when a train is coming. And that's one of the biggest environmental justice issues in the East End is around trains, their pollution, and how hazardous they are. I had always heard on the news about all these people that got hit by trains, and I couldn't understand how that would happen unless you were trying to go around the arms. Well, the night that I was taking Maria home, we were driving. You know, I didn't see anything at the railroad tracks. I saw that there was a railroad track. I didn't think that I needed to stop and actually look to see if anything was coming. I just assumed that the arms would come down if there was a train. 
And so as I'm going over the railroad tracks, there's this big light on the right-hand side of us. And I looked, and Maria looked at me, and our eyes were about as wide as that light on the front of that train. I was shocked that there was a train, and she was shocked that I didn't know that there was a train. (laughs) I was just like, oh, my God. But we got through the tracks until that moment. I had no idea that not all railroad tracks had railroad crossing arms and lights and just how easily it could have been for that train to take both me and Maria out. So, you know, I feel like in some alternate universe, all you guys had that time with Maria these last 15 years. That's all borrowed time. I have a weird sense of of humor. So, you know, I apologize if I've offended anyone by saying that. um, But that's how I deal with loss through through humor so she looked at you and said you're not from around here are you oh i'm sure (laughs) you were one of the main organizers for the immigrant workers freedom ride you have been a national immigrant organizer and human rights activist and have been known across the nation for years and most recently there occurred something at the harris county republican party and you went to go deliver some letters what happened Well, basically, we went to deliver letters against an executive committee resolution, which they had passed, endorsing the idea of federalizing local police to enforce immigration laws. And so we had collected over 2,000 letters, and I was among, in a group of 20 that went into the Republican headquarters to deliver the letters. We had done this before, and the Republican Party had accepted the letters, and actually had an impact in changing some policies in years previous. So we went, and this time we found ourselves immediately being told to get out, so that we were, this was private property. And then the executive director came out and started calling some of the immigrants who were trying to deliver the letter front liars and liars to the media and wouldn't allow anyone to speak. Here we are, peacefully petitioning for a reconsideration. They had hard to work with us even before we began to speak and didn't want us to speak and didn't want us to give our opinions. Just the ease of screaming and calling us liars. That is when I stepped in and... And so in the process, tried to give the executive director 200 letters. And he wouldn't. He said he wouldn't accept them. So then I just put them on the table. And about 45 minutes later, we were outside protesting. Police come, and they inform me that he's charging me with assault. And so we went to an arraignment hearing, and we asked that we have a jury trial because we are certain that we in no way physically hurt him. Maybe he was, his ego was hurt uh, because I stepped in and did not permit him to continue to abuse us verbally. And as a matter of fact, he, he and the other person in the office actually took all the letters we left and put them out on the street. I see it more as it bruised his ego. That was the bruising that, that he complained. But again, it was a response of arrogance, of the assurance that they have the power and that they will assert that power. So for us, that's why it's important, because democracy is about petitioning, it's about dialogue, it's about trying to understand our differences and then coming to a conclusion. But here was a total, a total unwillingness to even consider us as acceptable in dialoguing with them when they, the first thing they do is to tell us to get out because this is private property. So I, I think there are certain sectors within the Republican Party who are very anti-immigrant and have, uh, in the case of this executive director, have no problems in attempting to repress whatever Democratic, and this was the case, Democratic petitioning process for reconsideration and change. Both of them felt that we deserved absolutely no consideration. Perhaps it's simply that we need to say at some point, this has got to stop, and you have to treat us with respect, and we're here, and we will pursue the defense of our rights. Resistance is is an important part of uh, maintaining your dignity and of asserting your rights. Say you're American, but what does it mean? You are the particle, the dust in the scheme. Now that you have all the things that you want, did you ever look around to see who you forgot? When did you come to America? Garden of Eden, Garden of Rush, Black Heart, the 
brought us here now. We forget our dead too much. I really don't know who I am, but I will. I know there's a purpose, there's a reason for me to be here. Dust is to dust, heavy memory. Even if they grind me, still dust I will be. This land is your land. an activist in the Latino community for over 40 years, and, and I've been concentrated on uh, immigrant rights, I guess, for the last um, 26 years. We would get uh, reports of um, verbal abuse, a lot of sexual harassment. I remember two cases particularly, a Mexican woman in uh, Arizona gets stopped by a Border Patrol agent who then takes her to a lonely part of outside of the town of Nogales and rapes her. And so her name is Blanca. She came and she basically lost no time in contacting the Mexican consular authorities who immediately took her and had all the rape tests done and uh, presented the evidence before the U.S. authorities and who refused to charge the Border Patrol agent, even though all the evidence was there. So Blanca decides uh, to file uh, a legal suit against both the agency and, and against the agent. And so I was able to go with the Derechos Humanos of Arizona, who uh, was the principal organization in Tucson, that had assisted her in getting her attorneys and in going through the process. We monitored the, the trial, and at this trial, it turned out that there were about four or five other women that came forward that the same agent had raped them, including the wife of another Border Patrol agent. And so, uh, so basically, they, you know, she won her legal suit against the agent and the agency. Another one was when a Salvadoran woman who was arrested, her name was Ana Guerrero. She was actually arrested by the FBI, alleging that she had ties to the Salvadoran guerrilla movement. And when they arrested her and took her to detention, there's a tendency to think that the more you talk, the more you're going to um, be allowed to, to go free. Uh, she basically refused to give name, country, and she sustained that for months in detention, and so they finally had to let her go because the government could not prove that she was a foreign national, could not prove that she was violating the laws because she just simply went silent and would not cooperate at all. And and that uh, and that allowed her to stay in the United States. So they can't just keep you indefinitely if you refuse to talk. No, at some point, if you get legal assistance, they have to let you go because they have nothing. They can't accuse you of anything. If you just don't say anything at all, then eventually you'll get released. How does that happen? Well, because the government legally, the government has uh, the burden 
of proving that you're in the country illegally. Problem sometimes also is that people had been arrested previously and now with fingerprints and stuff. Okay. That, that'll end it. But if you have no problems, so they could never do anything about removing her from the country or proving the allegations because she just simply knew that it's that she had a right to remain silent and she used her right to remain silent. And, but she was there for many months. There were even some plays written about about her. It was a training that we were given. That was the Immigrant Workers' Freedom Ride. And we were trained just in case we would ever be stopped. And so one of the buses was stopped in, in El Paso. Um, we just had a picture, our first name, no last name, and then we would turn our, our card around and it said, I have the right to remain silent. And so it was agreed that people would um, start singing, We Shall Overcome. And the agents walk up, people began to sing, We Shall Overcome, and the agents started getting everybody off the bus. And they actually questioned people for four hours. They separated people, they went one by one, and nobody broke. Nobody stopped singing, nobody said their name, and they, they had to let them go. In the meantime, we were all, you know, congressmen and all sorts of people were calling the Border Patrol agents. And so, but the thing was that when you talk to the bus riders, they said that if they had not been singing, they might, someone might have given in. But, but they would hear others singing that we shall overcome. So for four hours, they were able to sustain the singing. For four hours? For four hours. And there's a film of people just crying afterwards how, you know, this victory that was just totally theirs because they did the one thing you should do, which is not say anything because in the immigration context, the government has the burden of proving that you're here without documents, not you. I remember early on, she had convened a group of us for the Immigration and Refugee Rights Coalition. And this was at a time when this was not part of the progressive agenda. It was still percolating. It was still in, it felt as if we were in deep Texas, early 20s and 30s at some of those moments, okay? <laughs> and we would convene in basements and church halls. And I remember the audacity of Maria because I was coming from Chicago and I was in graduate school. So I would go from the <laughs> blue city of Chicago <laughs> to the ivory tower of the University of Houston creative writing program to backwoods deep south where there was some deep oppression and racism going on against immigrants and refugees. And we would convene with like-minded individuals who had the audacity to speak up, to act up, and to believe that we can make a difference. And that was fundamental to my own growth as an individual as a thinker, as an activist. And I remember that she would fiercely defend us as a collective because we're not taught to work that way. And she would also enumerate on the most philosophical ideas, but then also in any one second, make it as direct as a brick that might fly through a window. <laughs> you know, That's the kind of intellectual capacity she brought to the table in that she could take the most complex issue and argue any PhD <laughs> or commentator into the ground or a corner, but at the same time, make it so plain and simple for someone from our community to understand it and feel emboldened. That's part of the praxis and the practice that she has shared with me, and I'm blessed to, to be able to continue with that work. I also want to say that in her honor, we do want to include this one-hour special on our webpage, which is Latinx icons, because without a doubt, she is an icon. Maria, bienvenida. Muchas gracias. ¿Y cómo estás? Tell us, first of all, for a lot of folks who don't know what International Migrants Day is, what is it? The United Nations decided that it was important to designate a, a day that would recognize migrants around the world and their contributions to countries where they reside and also countries where they come from. And so as a result, we have been now celebrating International Migrant Day in the last three years, which is December the 18th. 
Today we are speaking with Maria Jimenez, a national immigrant rights leader, in honor of International Migrants Day, which was held on December 18, 2003. Maria, let's talk about some of the issues that you think are really important that people need to understand. I think the basic issue is that in our current world, in which communications and travel is readily available, that we need to rethink what it means when people are able to access a, a right which has been a right uh, for generations, the right to move and reconstruct your lives or add to them for whatever reason, whether it's political democracy or economic well-being, that right, the right of human mobility, needs to be recognized as a fundamental human right. She spoke to young folks and mentored them um, by osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. She, did, she didn't have to intentionally, you know, work at it. It's. I think a lot of folks um, think there's like this official process to being mentored. And, you know, when it happens in a natural way, it's the best way. And, and she was really good at that. It just leading by example and encouraging and supporting young folks um, to step up. And, and I know she got burned a couple of times, you know, be, because of that trust. Um, but she had a really good attitude and she, she didn't take things personally and, and <laughs> she would probably not enjoy <laughs> us having a special about her, um, <laughs> because she didn't think, you know, that, uh, she was any different from anyone else. Um, and that, if if she was going to have, you know, a, a special broadcast episode like this, then everyone should as well. And and she's right, you know, they should. But I agree. Uh, but we need to honor her, um, and people need to remember everything that she was and everything she did, um, and 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 that that will serve as a you know a very proud thing that uh, a lot of young mujeres and hombres in all of our barrios um, to, to model. Año de 1998 corría en los Estados Unidos el grupo Arcanacía
toda la gente. ¿Cómo se llaman ustedes, el trío? Trío Imperial. ¿Y qué es tu nombre? Irma Banda Martínez. Hoy es um, septiembre 24 de, 19, de 2002. Ay, gracias. ¿Y por qué estamos aquí hoy? Uh, estamos um, despidiendo a nuestra líder, a nuestra gran líder, María Jiménez, a quien admiramos, respetamos y queremos porque nos ha dado ese entusiasmo de lucha para defender a todas las personas que están dentro o fuera de la ley de migración. You're listening to 90.1 FM, KPFT, Pacifica, Houston. This is Ana Nunez, and we are reporting from Houston Interfaith Worker Justice Center. I am sitting here with Maria Jimenez. Maria December 18th marks International Migrants Day. Talk to us how it ties into International Human Rights Day, which is celebrated on December 10th. Well, I think in the work that we do around immigrant rights, uh, the work is based in understanding that uh, borders are not the important element. It's the human being uh, with full rights and dignity. And so the core principle of the Declaration of, of Human Rights uh, is uh, that all human beings are equal in dignity and rights, and that uh, all human beings are entitled to develop to their full potential. So when we do immigrant rights work, we are essentially uh, are focusing on those principles. And um, International Migrants Day, which is December the 18th, is an extension of that tradition by the United Nations of declaring certain days as, uh, as days of observance and celebration. And of course, the most uh, cherished one sh that should be for all human beings worldwide is December the 10th, which is International Human Rights Day, and celebrating the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Uh, which is uh, uh, rights that are one, because no right uh, that we currently enjoy is one that was granted easily. It was hard fought, and we are still fighting uh, in many parts of the world to have those realized, to have those exercised. And, in, um, and there are many other rights which are not legally recognized, but which Uh, we should have as human beings because of our current history, like uh, the right to a healthy environment, uh, the right to health, which were not included in the Declaration originally. Uh, but all of those are, are rights that, that we continue to uh, hold as important uh, for human beings uh, to have and, uh, and for us to defend. Now, let's help dispel a myth. Does the United States accept the majority of the immigrants worldwide? And no, according to the United Nations, the United States accepts 1% of the people who move from between one country or another. And the majority of the people who come into the United States, about 75% of them enter legally. And the majority of those are Mexican nationals. Let's talk about the human rights abuses that I know it's a real issue that te pega en el alma. It's an issue that you fought for years. Let people know what you have witnessed along the border as far as human rights abuses and human rights issues. In some of the cases that we have dealt over the years, probably the most serious is that the current strategy for enforcing immigration laws on the southern border has intentionally raise such obstacles for people crossing the border that there is a need for them to go through very remote and risky areas of the border, increasing in the number of deaths of migrants. There's at least uh, 300 immigrants that die every year crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, and this year has been particularly deadly in the Arizona border, while someone who is a CEO, for instance, can enter legally and safely without any problem. So the inequities, the fact that Because you are poor and you want to better your situation or your life, you have to make a choice of risking death, and that is something extremely serious. We've seen in terms of the actions, uh, for instance, of the INS or the Border Patrol people who have uh, been unjustifiably shot, uh, Dario Miranda, when an immigrant in Arizona shot in the back twice, and yet the 
state jury and as well as the federal jury found the agent not guilty. We've seen the persistence of agents who rape immigrant women and the difficulty of actually finding them guilty in courts on issues of rape. And even here locally in Houston, the case of Serafino Vera, the court did not find the agents guilty of excessive force, even though this man's neck was broken when he was taken down during uh, a house raid. But they basically found the officers guilty on the lack of medical aid. And while it's a victory, in that sense it isn't, because again, institutions by their behavior and juries who represent the general American public do not seem to think that immigrants have the right to be equal. Tenemos alguien aquí que es, representa a la comunidad en Houston, a la comunidad hispana, y que trabaja noche y día, todo el tiempo, por los derechos civiles y humanos de las minorías, de los refugiados, sobre todo por nos, nuestra gente, por la raza, por los hispanos. Yo tuve el honor un día, lo voy a hacer brevemente, de ponerle el testimonio de ella en un mural donde está junto con otras mujeres, como Rigoberta Menchú, como, como Sor Juana Inés, y tenemos el honor aquí a María Jiménez. Un aplauso. María, 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 María. Pueblo, 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 porque ni yo ni ninguno de los que estamos aquí podemos tomar como triunfo este día. Ustedes y nosotros como el pueblo inmigrante somos los que hemos reclamado justicia. Nosotros el pueblo inmigrante en todo Estados Unidos, en más de 136 comunidades, hemos dicho, ya basta. Ya no podemos esperar, ya no podemos esperar que los políticos decidan por nosotros. Ya no podemos esperar que nuestras madres sigan muriendo en nuestros países y no podemos ir a verlas. Ya no podemos esperar. Ya no podemos esperar que se nos haga justicia en los trabajos. Ya no podemos esperar que algún político nos diga que nos va a actuar en nuestro nombre. Nosotros hoy en todo el país hemos dicho, nosotros mismos vamos a reclamar esa justicia. Nosotros mismos vamos a enseñar nuestra cara de dignidad. Nuestra cara de trabajador, nuestra cara de mujer, nuestra cara de niño, nuestra cara de ser humano con dignidad y derechos. Nosotros, el pueblo inmigrante, tenemos que mandar ese mensaje no hoy, sino también el primero de mayo. Porque nosotros construimos todos los días... No hay que comprar, no hay que vender, no hay que trabajar. Que conozcan nuestra fuerza económica. Votaremos con nuestra cartera, votaremos con nuestro trabajo. Y hay que siempre que quede claro que de aquí en adelante será un país distinto. Un país distinto porque hemos reclamado nuestro espacio en la democracia. Y la estamos forjando cuando se nos llega simplemente porque somos de otro país. Hay que recordar que los afroamericanos en el movimiento de derechos civiles era un sector que no podía votar. Era un sector que se le negaba el derecho al voto aunque era ciudadano. Pero marchó, hizo plantones, hizo huelgas económicos y logró dos Dos leyes muy importantes para el, todo el pueblo norteamericano. La ley de derechos civiles y el derecho de los votos. Y así, así de la misma forma, nosotros vamos a lograr no nada más la protección migratoria para todos aquellos que no lo tienen, sino también mejor calidad de vida con muchos más cambios. No hay que decir que fue ningún líder, 
No hay que decir que fue ningún político. No hay que decir que fue alguna organización. El triunfo de hoy es el triunfo de ustedes. Y el triunfo de hoy es el triunfo de todos. Y siempre vamos a mandar ese mensaje que ya ha sido mansado por muchas comunidades. Nuestra dignidad no se rinde. María. 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 Well, the struggles have really remained constant over the years that I have been involved in, and they deal with the anti-immigrant sentiment that is very strong, uh, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And that results in policies that restrict and deny people's rights in the countries where they reside. But most importantly, I think what has become an issue is the fact that discrimination for the foreign-born is an accepted international legal norm. And so that issue has again and again becomes a recurrent theme in how people are perceiving the society and the exercise of their rights. The notion that the nation state can decide who comes in, under what conditions, and who can stay, and how they can become members of the society is an issue that directly contravenes Article One of the Declaration of Human Rights, which says that all human beings are equal in dignity and rights. And so it's that interplay between that right and the nation state's right to control who comes in and out of the border that continues to frame all the issues of facing the foreign-born in today's world. I think that's one of the essential points that we see. And then secondly, that human beings are equal in dignity and rights. So once they're in a country, that rights be conferred to people because they are people, because they're human beings, and they require an environment where they can develop their human potential. And when you restrict the right to education or you restrict the right to employment or you restrict the right to health, all of these are fundamental human rights that are denied to someone simply because they weren't born within the political jurisdiction. And ultimately, part of the inequality deals with the acceptance of inequalities worldwide. The fact that the wealthier are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poorer have an impact on communities. And those result in reasons why people are forced to move and forced to move under serious conditions for a better life. And so it's not just about changing immigration policy or access to rights, but also about the construction of a society that provides for the well-being of families and individuals. This notion that, that this is a group of people that the nation state has absolute power to just simply arrest and send out of the country without dealing with the impacts on families when this happens or even on the individual who might have been working for decades, and, and that's the case of many in the United States, in order to exploit workers and, and then when there's a need to stage an operation to appease the public's anti-immigrant sentiment, the government has moved, but the 9-11 situation really expanded and justified, institutionalized legally many of these violations by the government. In many areas, people are now denied access to medical services, and in many cases, such services as dialysis or cancer treatment is denied to people who are undocumented. And basically, again, it's a government policy that states your life and prolonging your life is not important to this society. So that's a very harsh and cruel human rights violation which many families in the United States have to face. And then we have, of course, the illegal trafficking that results in conditions in which people are kept in slavery. In Florida, the Immokalee workers who had just did a big protest, the big boycott against Taco Bell on behalf of the tomato pickers, amongst them there have been five slavery rings that have been uncovered by the federal government, including sexual trade rings where women are held as sexual slaves. And this, again, from domestic workers to agricultural workers, even urban construction workers are kept by bosses. So there's a series and gamut of human rights violations that, again, are framed under this concept that, that the nation state has the right to discriminate against the foreign born. And that sets the premises for all sorts of conditions and then deny all the other rights. The situation of 9-11 really accelerated conditions of repression in immigrant communities 
in a way that, again, reaffirms this concept that the foreign-born do not have the equal rights of native-born. And that's why in the United States, one of the most immediate effects was to have a different set of judicial rights for those accused of terrorism, setting up secret courts with secret evidence, not having the right to confront your accusers because in the name of national security. So in the first place, there, uh, this dual condition for non-citizens was established if one is accused of terrorism. In the United States, we also have to see it as economies that are providing for the future of all of us who are aging in terms of the money put into our social security system. So for many, many different views, the economic activity of immigrants is a net gain. Well, I think it's also important to note that immigrants pay far more in taxes than they do take in benefits, and they are the backbone of this country in providing services from cleaning our toilets to taking care of our children to cleaning our hospitals, working in construction sites where immigrants, Latino immigrants, have the highest incidences of death. So they're in our hospitals, our schools, our, and our air- airports, and everywhere taking care of and doing all the jobs that most people do not want to do at less or at minimum wage. And so I think that this country benefits greatly from them. And there is a huge hypocrisy, and hopefully the Republican administration is recognizing that Tom Ridge uh, caught the White House off guard and is calling publicly for some sort of immigration reform for the 8 to 10 million immigrants that are currently residing in the U.S. Now, let's talk about, I think, the unintended effects of tightening our borders. We're talking about migration. And has it, in fact, after September the 11th, actually increased the number of immigrants residing here in the U.S.? And talk about how the cyclical migration that families would prefer to do if the borders were indeed open. Well, it didn't have any impact in the sense of the number of people attempting to cross the border or actually crossing the border. What it did do was to make it much more difficult for people to return home. And so we see much, many more immigrants who came back and forth, particularly across the U.S.-Mexico border, settling in the United States or having been forced to settle in the United States, where before they were transnational communities in both countries. And this situation is particularly alarming because, again, it does not provide for we don't have within our immigration law a system that recognizes the seasonal worker, and it doesn't recognize if that worker decides to stay the legal option at this current moment in order to become a permanent resident. So a lot of the discussion around legalization is about those two options. How can we reform our immigration laws to permit those who want to come to come in safely and legally? and be protected with the same rights that anyone working in the United States are protected by? Or, secondly, how do we permit those seasonal workers and others who have come in years before to actually legalize or seek permanent residency within the United States? It's a big problem because it's a huge population, 8 million to 10 million. And that also implies consequences for families young people who don't have documents who were brought over, you know, in terms of impediments to studying, impediments to uh, better types of occupations or ways of making a living within our own communities here in the United States. So all of that, I think, together, again, talks about the grave need or the very serious need that we have to look at all the reforms that have come about, immigration law, which are an obstacle to allowing people to become legal residents and that we need to provide for flexibility both in legal migration and, and also in access to permanent residency. Ultimately, populations that cannot become permanent residents will never become United States citizens because you need five years, according to the law, of permanent residency in order to apply for U.S. citizenship, which means that many of our communities will be disenfranchised. And that wraps up tonight's show. Maria Jimenez lives on forever in our memories and in our hearts, and now on this radio show. I want to thank everyone that helped get the audio together, Ana Nunez, Brian Fadas, and those who took the time to do some other audio on the side right before the show, so that way we could really take some time and honor a woman that deserves to be honored in this way. 
first I want to thank you for spearheading this because this very act is what she has inspired us to do. We're standing on her shoulders right now because she taught us to work as a collective. She taught us to be brave. She taught us to stand up. And what I would like to share would be that um, I was blessed to be in an anthology with her. She's also a writer. She does everything. And she, she, she really does. You know, it's like, uh, and, and I always have to remember that, you know, I may have come to Houston for graduate school, but she took me to the next level because I remember one of my first caravans was on um, La Coordinadora 2000. This was this caravan to Washington, D.C., where Latinos went in full force in 2000, which was one of the very first times that we descended upon Washington, D.C. I love it because on that bus there, I met a lot of the activists who I still work with, who I still love. And she always wanted to give us the power back, train us, and keep working. So I think we are all better for it. Houston is richer for it. But the tools she's given us, I'm, I'm so happy that we can now, let's get this straight. We're transmitting this at 100,000 watts. This will be archived as part of the University of Houston Digital Archives, like all of our shows from now on. And what I love, too, is that we're going to put it on SoundCloud. You will text it. You will tweet it. Her legacy lives on. We're proof of it. But how joyful that we can let other people know about that. So I'm really blessed to, to, to honor her memory and to walk among her legacy. We'll continue to remember her through her daughter, her son, and her life's work. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, que ya no puede caminar, porque no tiene, porque le falta la Misa y en la feria, todo el mundo ya lo sabe, los que llegan al gobierno, porque se puede comprar del Partido Comunista, ya no queda casi nada, ahora todos van buscando cómo hacerse millonada. Victor Jara no me vaya a doblegar 
Chama, Chama Che Guevara, una petición, una cucaracha por culpa y omisión. If you decided to donate your birthday to KPFT this year, thank you. If your special day hasn't yet arrived, consider donating your birthday to KPFT. Here's how it works. Facebook sends you a prompt before your birthday asking if you'd like to donate your birthday to a nonprofit. Select KPFT as your organization of choice. Then add a personalized message so that your friends know how much KPFT means to you. On your birthday, they'll receive a Facebook notification asking them to make a donation in your honor to KPFT. Thanks again for supporting 90.1 FM KPFT Houston, Pacifica Radio for Peace. Pacifica is listener-sponsored radio. Listener sponsorship is an answer to the practical problem of getting better radio programs and keeping them. A focus on advertisers or the mass audience accounts for the mediocrity of corporate radio. With such mediocrity, improvement of radio is utopian. 
When listeners support the radio they enjoy, their choices become better. Listener sponsorship takes control of your radio out of the hands of companies and into the hands of the community. But maintaining this sort of radio requires you. 